0: The Bible presents for us two truths that seem to be contradictory. The Bible presents two truths that seem to be contradictory the fact that God is completely sovereign, completely in control over all things, and human responsibility the fact that we are responsible for our actions. Now, these two things seem to be contradictory. If God is completely sovereign, completely in control of all things, then how can we be responsible? How can we be accountable for our actions and our lives? Because after all, God is sovereign. On the other hand, if we are responsible for our lives and held accountable for our lives, then how is God ultimately in control? How is God ultimately sovereign over our actions and our lives and our affairs? Well, this is the question that we want to address this morning. We are continuing our five-week series on important questions and last week, we looked at the questions, kind of the twin or related questions. Is Jesus the only way to God? And if so, is conscience faith in him required for salvation? And uh, spoiler alert, if you weren't here last week and you haven't yet watched or listened online, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Jesus Christ is the only way to God and conscious faith in him is required for salvation if you're wondering how that is or why that is I would just direct you back to the message from last week but this morning we want to look at a related question and there will be no slides on the screen I'm sorry I know that there's probably great weeping and gnashing of teeth over that I was working and tweaking on this till early this morning so no no slides you just have to listen and take good notes if salvation, here's the question, if salvation is the work of God, why share the gospel? So this is a natural outflow of last week's question. Is conscious faith in Jesus required for salvation? We said yes. But if God is completely sovereign over all things, then why share the gospel? To put it this another way, if God is sovereign If God is in control over all things, then what is the purpose of sharing the gospel? What's the purpose of evangelism? What's the purpose of missions? Because if God is sovereign, then won't He assure that everyone who is predestined to be saved will be saved, whether we share the gospel or not? What's the point? Now, that's an important question. That's not a light question. And once again, like last week, we want to answer that question by looking at several different texts of Scripture, beginning here in Romans chapter 10. So here in Romans 10, Paul, the apostle, the church planter and missionary, is writing to the believers, to the church in the city of Rome. And by the time we get here... (coughs) In Romans chapter 10, we have had 10 chapters of Paul outlining the need for the gospel and then explaining in detail the content of the gospel. And then he moves to helping us to unpack the ramifications of the gospel. And now he answers really the question how are people to be changed by the gospel? Or how does the gospel come to people? The answer is through hearing the gospel, as Shannon read for us this morning. Look at verse 9. The word of the Lord says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, or because, with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So how are sinful men and women saved? How are men and women who have rebelled against the creator God, saved by him? We could also add saved back to him. And the Holy Spirit through Paul says that this salvation comes through belief. It comes through faith. Friends, God only saves one kind of people, sinners who don't deserve it. And this salvation comes and has always come through faith. It's always come through believing in the God-provided Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if you think back to the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel was saved by faith in God. Faith in the promised God-provided rescuer to come. Even though they didn't know his name. And now, we who live after Jesus's life and death and resurrection are saved by faith in the God-provided rescuer who has come. His name is Jesus. Paul outlines this. And then in verse 11, Paul builds on this foundation by telling the church in Rome And telling us this morning that this promise of salvation by faith in Jesus is available not just to Jews, but to all people, regardless of nationality and regardless of ethnicity. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if salvation involves confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead, And if salvation, then, is available to all, to Jew and Greek, to all ethnicities and all nationalities, then how does that salvation come to us? And that's what we want to focus on this morning, because it's as though the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is answering the question, okay, Paul, like, how does that happen? And what about those who have never heard? And what about those in a jungle somewhere? What about them? Look at the way God's word answers those questions. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all uh, obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So if we are saved by calling on the name of the Lord... Like, Lord, save me, a sinner, then how are people going to call on the name of the Lord if they don't believe in him? So Belief comes before calling on the name of the Lord. And how are they to believe in him if they haven't heard of him? So hearing comes before belief, which comes before calling on the name of the Lord. And Paul adds, how are they to hear the gospel if someone doesn't preach or speak it to them or tell them? The gospel. So, sharing the gospel, speaking the gospel, communicating the gospel, writing the gospel comes before hearing the gospel, which comes before believing the gospel, which comes before calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. Further, if we keep going back, how are people to preach and speak and write and communicate and share the gospel unless they are sent, unless they're encouraged and equipped and discipled and trained? And nurtured and sent out, inspired to do so. As Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Those who preach the gospel. And there he's quoting from Isaiah 52 where Isaiah is looking forward to the day of God's glorious saving work. Saying that the way God will save is by the word of God going out. The gospel of Jesus Christ Going out and people hearing it and people receiving it. People believing and people calling on the name of the Lord. Now, notice what's happening here. In answer to the question, okay, how are people saved? Paul does not say, well, you know, about those who have never heard, God is sovereign, he'll take care of it. No. He says, the way that people call on the name of the Lord and are saved is directly connected to the faithful gospel proclamation of God's people. Now, you should hold that in your mind because that's Romans 10. Right before Romans 10, ironically enough, is Romans 9. I know, I went to seminary. In Romans 9, Paul over and over again teaches that the reason why some trust in Jesus and are saved and others reject Jesus and are lost is owing to the sovereign plan of God. Just flip back to Romans 9. If you have a Bible like mine, it's just one page to the left. I want to point out Just a few verses to show you what I mean. And this is, we're jumping into the middle of an argument, which is always hard to do. But Paul is emphasizing the reason why some are softened to God and others are hardened, remain in their hardness, is owing to the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? if some are softened by the work of God and some are hardened and some are left in their hardness by the work of God, is, is, is God in unjust? Because it seems unjust to us. It seems unfair to us. Paul says, by no means. For he, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, you remember Pharaoh from the Old Testament, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pause real quick there. The point, God is saying the reason I did what I did with Pharaoh was that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And it's almost as though here Paul is anticipating the reader's question, right? The hand shooting up in the air. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 19. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Even us on whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, this is not a sermon on the doctrine of election or predestination. We'll save that for another time. But my point in bringing all of this up is simply to establish the fact that the Bible teaches two seeming contradictions. God is in complete control over all things. He saves whom he wills, Romans 9. And humans are called to share the gospel and are responsible for our obedience in sharing the gospel, Romans 10. Now lest you think this morning, okay, it's Sunday morning Maybe I haven't even had my coffee yet. And this is just like heady theological talk that people deal with and write about, theologians and professors and stuff. Like that doesn't really involve real life. Let me show you how this connects to real life, where we all live. And I want to do that by pointing out two dangerous ditches that we can fall into. The first ditch is what one intern this week helpfully labeled anxious Ambition, anxious ambition. You could also call this guilt-driven missions and evangelism. And I would submit this is this, pro, this is probably the most common error among evangelicals today when we think about evangelism and missions and God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Let me give you some examples of things you might hear from someone operating out of anxious ambition. Things like this. If you don't go to the mission field or if you don't share the gospel with fill in the blank, your neighbor, your friend, family member, then they may never hear. And as a result of may not hear and as a result of the fact that they may not hear, they won't receive Christ. If they don't receive Christ, they'll spend eternity in hell apart from Christ. Therefore, you have to go because it rides on you. Like If you don't go, they will never hear. You don't want that hanging over your head. Anxious ambition is wrong because it fails to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Are we, as Christians, to be sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. Is God calling his people to spread the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for sin far and wide? Yes. But God is sovereign. He is completely sovereign. Those whom he has appointed to salvation will believe. If you and I fail to obey the call to live out our faith and to share the gospel, God will raise up others. He will assure that all of His own will be saved. It just may not be through you. Like in the end, God's plan won't be interrupted by our disobedience. Like God's wringing His hands. Like, I really wanted, I really wanted Jake to be a Christian. But to do that, Sam was supposed to go and share the gospel with him because Sam refused to go and share the gospel with Jake. Jake is going to go to hell, and I really wanted to save Jake. We laugh because we realize how absurd it is when we put it like that. Yet we hear this kind of rhetoric all the time, like if you don't go, they won't hear it. If they don't hear, it might be on you. So in the end, God's plan won't be interrupted by our disobedience, but we will miss out on the incredible joy and the privilege of being used of God to lead others home to him. We will miss out on a part of what it means to be a son or daughter of the Most High God, which is helping others to become sons or daughters of the Most High God. In other words, this anxious ambition is essentially Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who share without Romans 9 it's Engaging in missions and evangelism is though man it all depends on me I got to get this right Got to get the formula right and the words right and the narrative right I got to make sure it's all the right people and I do it enough and if they don't believe it, it's because maybe I haven't shared enough and so every time I say I just got to share more and more If anxious ambition is Romans 10 without Romans 9, then the other ditch, as you can imagine, is Romans 9 without Romans 10. And in first service, I said, the interns did not helpfully provide a title for this one. Thanks, guys. Thankfully, after service, two different people came up at two different times and gave two great titles for this one. So we're going to call this apathetic avoidance. So we had anxious ambition, this is apathetic avoidance. It's Romans 9 without Romans 10. It's the belief that says, well, you know, God is ultimately sovereign over all things. He will save his elect. Therefore, it's not important that I share the gospel or go to the nations. Because after all, regardless of what I do or don't do, God will save whom he will save. Therefore, my gospel sharing, my gospel proclamation, my witnessing, my evangelizing, my missions work is not really that important. Because God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. And you can see how this apathy is not biblical. It is not being obedient to the call that we have to go and tell, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with all nations. It's ignoring Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and the hearing by the word of God, and hearing the word of God comes through God's appointed means of hearing the word of God, which in fact is men and women of God. Here's the thing. Both of these ditches, anxious ambition, apathetic avoidance, have an element of truth. My guess is probably most of us in this room, probably like trend we take the hands off the steering wheel for a moment we kind of pull in one direction or another maybe do our background or our upbringing or the way we're wired and so if you're someone with an incredibly tender heart and you love people and you have a concern for people that just kind of exudes and overflows you might tend towards anxious ambition Like, oh, they're not a believer. If I could just do more, if I say more, get it right. Keep yourself awake at night, just worrying. And if that's where you are at, my hope this morning is that this message is being used by God to deepen your trust in Him. That you will be able to be like the farmer in Mark chapter four, who goes out and faithfully scatters the seed, scatters the gospel. And then he goes home, and the Bible says he goes to sleep. And while he sleeps, right, while he's not in control, while he rests, God causes the seed to germinate, and God causes the seed to take root and to sprout and to grow and to produce fruit. That you might find rest, comfort. At the same time, others of you may find yourself tending more towards apathetic avoidance. You probably wouldn't put it like that. Maybe if you are one who loves to study deep theology and the heady things of the Lord and you love to rest firmly in the sovereign plan and the, the control of God over all things, delighting in that, maybe you find that you haven't prayed for the lost. Lately, maybe you find that you rarely share the gospel. You're rarely broken for the lostness of our world. And maybe in your mind, you, you wouldn't say, you know what, I'm apathetically avoiding sharing the gospel, apathetically avoiding doing the work of God. Maybe it's just easier to talk about the sovereignty of not God and not get involved in the messiness of people's lives and not get involved in the uncomfortability of person-to-person gospel proclamation. And so you hear about the sovereignty of God and you're like, well, oh, that's the reason. God is sovereign. He's gonna do what he's gonna do anyway. And the theological argument of God's sovereignty is a really good kind of excuse to not engage in gospel proclamation. And if that's where you tend to trend this morning, I pray that this message is being used by the Holy Spirit to draw you into deeper obedience To pray for and share the gospel as you are fueled, not by obligation, but by gospel joy. Like I have found, because God has revealed to me this treasure of rare price in a field hidden somewhere. And now I want everyone to come and experience this treasure. So let's go back to our question. If God is sovereign, why share the gospel? And here's the way I believe that the Bible leads us to answer that question God is completely sovereign over his creation. God is completely sovereign over his creation. And the way he often chooses to work is through human means. So God is completely sovereign, and the way in which his sovereignty is exercised or is seen or manifests itself in our world is through human means, and usually very seemingly ordinary human means, very unsophisticated human uh, means. So. You can see in this definition both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. So what I want to do is I want to just point out a few texts from Scripture that kind of point to the fact that God is completely sovereign in the work of salvation and to point out the fact that he uses human means to accomplish his sovereign purposes in the work of saving sinners. So I would just encourage you to jot down maybe these references as we Make our way through first. Psalm one fifteen verse three says, "Our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases." So, like God is not trying; to, God does not do what He does trying to work with the deck that has been dealt to Him by human decisions. No, God deals the cards as He wills. He is in the heavens; He does all He pleases. John six forty four. Jesus said, "No one can come to Me." Unless, like, tell us, Jesus, this is really important. No one can come to me unless, unless what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Like no one is neutral. No one is independently seeking for God unless God is first drawing him. The work of salvation begins with God's drawing work. And I, Jesus said, will raise him up on the last day. Or Acts thirteen forty eight. After the Gentiles heard the good news of the gospel and how they were included in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And Luke tells us, Acts 13, 48, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So as many as were appointed to eternal life then believed. Or Ephesians 1, 3. God is sovereign over the work of salvation. So why are people saved? Because God chooses to save them. But how are people saved? How are we saved? Matthew 28. Go, therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Or John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Or Acts 13, 48, again The Gentiles hear this good news. They begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, what did they do? They believed. They weren't coerced, they weren't dragged, kicking, and screaming into faith in Jesus Christ. From their vantage point, it sounded good. It made sense. God opened their eyes, He softened their heart, He gave them spiritual sight, and they said, "I need that salvation, and they believed." Or again, Romans 10:13, "For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." Clearly, as John pa- uh, J. I. Packer has written, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are not contradictory points that need to be solved. Rather, they are a part of the beautiful reality of God's glory in salvation. They are both biblical. In fact, if you're even just wrestling with this and looking for a helpful resource, we have one in the back. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Fantastic, helpful resource. A short read on that topic. But don't we believe that God is completely sovereign in the work of salvation, and he chooses to use human means, Like, don't we believe that already? I mean, think about the way we pray. If we believed that God was not sovereign over the work of salvation, if God didn't actually soften people's hearts and open people's eyes, if we believe that someone was saved only because they alone, apart from the work of God, through their own rational devices, kind of all of a sudden reason their way to God, then why would we pray that God would save the lost? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense just to spend that time that we would have spent praying actually communicating and, and arguing for the reliability of, of the gospel or sharing the gospel? But why do we pray and what do we pray? We pray because we believe prayer accomplishes things. We Pray because we believe that when we ask God to save our family member or our friend or our classmate or our teammate or our coworker, we believe that God actually has the power to do that. In fact, we believe that's actually the way in which God does his saving work. It's by softening hearts, opening eyes. And so we pray, God, would you save my neighbor? Would you open their eyes to see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ? We pray because we know that salvation is the work of God. But we don't just pray and do nothing. We pray and then we act. We pray and then we share. We speak the gospel. We write the gospel. We live the gospel. Why? Because we know, according to Romans chapter 10, that the way, the means by which God accomplishes his divine purpose, the way that he has chosen to reach his anointed ends is through the means of his people. And all the time, God makes definitive statements about doing this. The Bible says, God did this, God hardened, God softened, God changed God caused. We see that when we read the Bible. But for those who were living the experience of Old Testament faith, New Testament faith, they didn't always see that. They didn't always recognize that that was God behind the scenes. To them, it looked an awful lot like human interaction and human engagement and personal desires and personal distastes. For example, we talked earlier about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that's definitive. It's the Bible telling us God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But we have no indication that from Pharaoh's perspective, he thought, well, the God of Israel hardened my heart. In fact, the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So God accomplished his purpose of hardening Pharaoh's heart through the human means of Pharaoh hardening His own heart. He hardened his heart in fear when he became aware of how populous the Israelites were. He hardened his heart in pride when he wanted to show Moses that he was superior and to show his nation that he didn't take orders from a former slave. He hardened his heart in jealousy as the plagues increased and he became aware that he wasn't going to win and we could go on and on and on see, in the narrative form of events in the Bible and in the narrative of our lives, we oftentimes only see kind of what's going on on front stage. We don't see the hand of God behind the curtain. It's working. We don't see the hand of the divine will of God, the sovereignty of God, that is accomplishing his purposes. Rather, we see what's happening out front as men and women Make decisions and choices and act or fail to act according to our own desires. Desires which are formed and shaped and motivated by God himself. So when we think about God's sovereignty in salvation, we need to remember that God ordains the ends and also the means which should actually motivate our obedience to the Lord because we are the means by which men and women will be saved. I mean think about that. The means by which God's people will hear his voice and turn from their sin and trust in him is by other people. People like you and me. And this should infuse joy into our obedience. Like we get to be a part of that. And at the same time, this should unburden us because the definitive work of salvation is the result of God. Like If we didn't believe that God was sovereign, we couldn't do that. We would wring our hands, we would get anxious and worried, and some of us live that way. And G.I. Packer writes, If our own efforts were not bearing fruit, and we didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, we should conclude that our technique still needed improving. Right? we just get the technique right, tumblers on the combination right as we share the gospel, one of these days we'll hit on the combination, and they will repent and believe. And We drive ourselves crazy. Or, if they were bearing fruit, Packer writes... If people are responding when we share the gospel, we should conclude that this justified our technique. Ah, I found it. I found the answer. And then we write a book and a bunch of Christians buy the book and we make a lot of money, right? This is the way to share the gospel. He says if we dismiss the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, we should regard evangelism as an activity involving the battling of wills between ourself and those to whom we go. A battle in which victory depends on our firing off enough heavy barrage of calculated effects to overcome their resistance. And thus our philosophy of evangelism would become terrifyingly similar to the philosophy of brainwashing. But scripture is clear that God is sovereign. So we faithfully share and we joyfully share and we engage in the work of evangelism and missions. We live out the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs Jesus. We do so whether the time is favorable or whether it is not favorable. And we pray that God would save sinners. And we rest knowing that that if any are saved, it will not be because of us. It will be because of him. And so, in closing, let's go back to our two ditches and let's try to correct each one. How should we respond to the ditch of, of anxiety? Anxious activism. So instead of, if you don't go, they won't hear. How about this? We get to go. God chooses to use people like me and like you to do his eternal work. But even if you... Reject obedience to God. Even if you don't go, it's not as though one of God's elect will be lost. God will raise up someone else to share the gospel. And you tragically will miss an opportunity for a front row seat into the joy-giving, miraculous work, awe-inspiring, saving work of God in transforming lives. So we get to go. We get to be a part. We get to share. And in responding to the apathetic ditch, we should challenge that from Scripture by being reminded that the way that God has chosen to redeem sinners to himself through the work of Jesus is through a message that is communicated from one human to another human. We are called to go. We're called to be a part of that. God is sovereign. He will do his work. His work involves people. That's one of the glorious parts of being a child of God is joining our father in his work, in the family business. And Make no mistake, we aren't the ones who do the definitive work of saving. We don't drive the nail home, but we get to hold the nail. We get to hand him the hammer. We get to be a part of that work. We were created to be a part of that work. And so I want to close this morning in gratitude to the Lord that he would both save sinners like you and me and that he would involve us as his children in his great work. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper this morning.